Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time to Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It is Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. The city of Chicago is baking. It is really hot. My Lord, it's so hot. I've just been hiding in my attic room where I have this. The one air conditioner in his house is in the attic room. I'm like surrounding the attic room. Uh, here's a little uh, item from today's uh, Sun-Times that really speaks to me. I wonder if my distinguished guests will inter- uh, agree with me in this point. Uh, so uh, Chicago Teachers Union President Stacey Davis-Gates, a.k.a. SDG, criticized the public schools for haphazardly introducing the new school calendar given the heat that typically descends on Chicago this month. And this is like a pet obsession of mine. I could go on and on about this. I have never understood why this compulsion educators feel to start the school year earlier. There is <laughs> there's nothing wrong with waiting till after Labor Day. It's so hot outside. Most of these schools don't have air. They stay there to have air conditioning, but most of them don't work. These kids are up in the second and third floor baking. Nothing is happening. By the way, this is always the case. And then you get this like, these obsessive educators who are all about self-promotion. This goes back to the days of daily. We're going to start them early. We're going to troop them in. They're going to learn stuff. Shut up, kid. Let me put stuff in your head. And then, like, I hate to say his Dems. You you kind of went this way with the, uh, I hate to say this Dems, the little Demi-Dems, you know, with uh, the um, uh, when we had the pandemic shut down the schools. Suddenly there was this obsession. My kid's at home. He's driving me crazy. You got to get back to school. You got to reopen the schools. And then, but instead of like making it seem about their kids, these upper middle class or middle class parents, they suddenly were like, I really care about the poor kids, the poor kids who need the education. Oh, I didn't see you caring about them for all those years (laughs) before the pandemic stopped your kid from going to school. 
I didn't ever see worried about a poor kid then. My distinguished guest made a movie, a great movie, about two poor kids struggling with public schools and the parochial schools. This stuff is age old, you know, but for some reason, all these demi-dems, I'm really worried about poor kids. Uh, really, what they were saying is, I want my kid out of the house because he's driving me crazy. Come on, guys, just start the calendar after Labor Day. All right. Enough of me ranting and raving. I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Uh, at this point, I can't really be distinguished, right, Ben? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Steve James. Yes. Filmmaker Steve James. Friend of the, show. On the show. Many, Friend many of the show. Times. Friend of the show. Always on the show. Always getting dragged onto the show <laughs> to either promote a movie or promote an idea that I have. Uh, you were just on the show. We were talking about the Bill Walton movie. People were like, wait a minute, Steve James, Hoop Dreams. That was this movie I was alluding to a little earlier about two kids from poverty in the city of Chicago. Uh, but wait, wasn't he just on talking about one movie? Bill Walton on ESPN? Well, this is a different movie, uh, The Compassionate Spy, which I actually think, in my humble opinion, is it the most brilliant movie you've made? I don't know, man. It's a hell of a great movie. And uh, I really believe it should be watched by absolutely everyone in America who has watched Oppenheimer because the overlaps between these movies, the documentary that Steve did, Passionate Spy, uh, and Christopher Nolan's spectacular Oppenheimer are really striking. Uh, and if you really want to understand the issues that Oppenheimer raises, I believe... You owe it to yourself to watch uh, Steve's movie, uh, Compassionate Spy. So, Steve, why don't you uh, I think tell we folks? Just, I think we should just call it quits right there. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> what, <laughs> I got Christopher Nolan coming on next week. Maybe he'll uh, say the same thing. And then you're really, uh, uh, you really be doing well. All right. Why don't you give folks a synopsis of of uh, well, first of all, tell them where they can watch it. Uh, we'll start with that and then give them the synopsis. Well, you can watch it on any of those streaming platforms where you have to pay at this point. <laughs> Amazon, Apple, uh, um, iTunes, Vudu, you know, YouTube. There's a bunch of them. Uh, and it's a it's a bargain, Ben. It's only $6.99. So, I mean, you can't even go to a matinee now for $6.99, I don't think. Um uh, well, actually, we now have Sunday $4 movies in the city of Chicago. I don't know if you know that, uh, but whatever. I didn't mean to <laughs> undercut your point there, but uh, Sundays, Sundays, $4 movies. But anyway, your point's well taken. Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, so anyway, so you want me to describe what the film is, too? Is yeah, that- in, in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, I could do it, but I'd rather you do it. Okay. Uh, it's a film about a guy named Ted Hall who was the youngest scientist at Los Alamos. At the ripe old age of 18, he was recruited out of Harvard, where he graduated at the age of 18, to become part of the Manhattan Project to build the bomb during World War II. And so he went off and worked on that. And by the time he turned 19, he decided that they were not only going to be successful in building this bomb, but they were going to, they were going to, the U S was going to have it all to themselves and that that would be a destabilizing, um, 
thing in the post-war world. And so he voluntarily turned himself into a spy and passed secrets to the Soviets, who were our allies, but who were not a part of this project. Uh, so this is his story, but it's also very much a love story about him and and Joan Hall, who survived him. Uh, she died about a month or so ago, but she was around for the making of the film, and she's a very big part of this story. She was a very big part of Ted's life and very big part of telling this story. So it's also a love story, not just an espionage story. Yeah, it's a great flick, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, I've seen it twice. Steve was kind enough to send me an advanced copy, which I watched on the phone, but then I got to see it on the big screen. And then Steve and I did a, a, a Q&A, a little discussion afterwards. Uh, it's even wait, better. Wait, on the big screen. wait, you watched it on a phone? Yeah, you so knew that. You you forgot that. Yeah, I I will now show you the phone I watched it on there. Yeah, uh, I, I think, but I think there needs to be some public shaming. <laughs> okay, I mean, you you call yourself a film buff, <laughs> I think. I mean, you're always bragging about all the films you've seen. That is true. And you would uh, deign to watch a friend's film on your phone. Yeah, well, it was either that or not watching it at all because I can't figure out how to get that link you sent me to, tied up to the TV. And I was all alone in a room in California with COVID. Yeah, how about that? I'm mean, building it out more. We should make a documentary me about watching your documentary. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. All so right, it, okay. it's a great flick. You were dying, you were dying of COVID. Okay, I, was, I got Well, it. not dying quite, but uh, I, I was gasping. <laughs> uh, and um, so. It's a straight-up documentary where uh, you have Joan uh, Hall and others uh, talking to the camera, and Steve uh, is the one doing the interviews. I think a couple times your voice, uh, isn't it? Yeah, I do believe your voice, uh, you hear the great Steve James in the movie. Uh, and then scenes where the people are walking through various parts of uh, England where they live. Uh, but then there's dramatic reenactments, so it's a little... Uh, different and Steve goes back and turns it into a sort of an espionage movie because he tells the tale of how the FBI were closing in on the halls in the early 50s. And that's a fascinating aspect of it, uh, Steve. I don't want to get ahead of myself on this, this. I actually don't want to reveal too much, but the halls were never prosecuted. Ted Hall was never prosecuted, even though he gave, <laughs> he literally gave the Soviets uh, the secrets of the bomb that enabled them to make a bomb, but the FBI and the feds never prosecuted him. I have a theory, which I shared with you as to why they didn't prosecute him. One more bizarre twist in this tale. Ted Hall's brother was a high ranking scientist uh, in the government uh, making other weapons of mass destruction. And so, he a, yeah, he was an engineer in the Air Force. He was he was their rocket expert engineer. I mean, and brilliant in the way that Ted was brilliant. Now, one thing, though, I want to uh, correct you on just a little bit in that that last statement. Ted helped the Soviets get the bomb and others helped Soviets get the bomb earlier. He did not give them the bomb in the sense that the Soviets were going to get the bomb regardless. It was well, they had brilliant scientists. They, the, the intelligence community in the United States knew that it was just a matter of time before the Soviets would have their own version of the bomb. The question was when, and they predicted it would take 10 years after the war for the Soviets to get the bomb. They got it in five years in part due to 
the spying of Ted and others like Klaus Fuchs and some British spies and the Rosenbergs and et cetera. All right. Fair enough. Uh, and uh, that's important because one of the problems, if people looking at this story, they think Ted Hall gave the Soviets the bomb. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like he, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it, he, it, he's not the reason the Soviet union got the bomb. No, they would have had it eventually anyway. And yes. Ted Hall has long since passed. I believe the number of countries that possess the bomb is up to, I'm doing this off the top of my head, six. I could be wrong. I could be missing some nine. Country. It's not. Wow. I am missing. I missed three. Can we just edit that out and make me look smart? Uh, all right. So there's nine countries that have the bomb. Ted Hall had nothing to do with any of them. Uh, building a bomb is the mechanism is not that. Well, how I put this complicated in terms of only American scientists could do it or only uh, German or European scientists who had uh, fled uh, Hitler to America could do it. I think there's scientists in pretty much every country in the world who could figure it out, Steve. So I, there's a bit of an exaggeration, in my humble opinion, of the impact of people like Ted Hall. Do you agree with me on that point? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and, and the reason I the reason I point this out is because, and maybe I'm getting a, ahead of our conversation is, <clears throat> is that I think the people that want to frown on what Ted Hall did and and look very negatively on what he did, which I understand. I do understand Ted himself had his own misgivings at a certain point um, about what he'd done, which he talks about in the film through archival interviews that we have with him. But the the problem, you know, I think is, is that people want to look at the, at Ted Hall and think that he's responsible for the Soviet Union's getting the bomb and that's not true, you know, they were going to get it. The question was when. And in Ted's view, the the U.S. having the bomb all to itself for a period of 10 years in the post-war period could have been catastrophic. I mean, that that's what governed his thinking. He worried about the U.S. having that bomb all to itself. And he wasn't naive like Oppenheimer thinking, that this would be some kind of one-off, like we drop bombs on Japan and then we what put them away, and the international community would control them, and no one would ever do this again. It's like that was talk about naive, you know. Yeah. Well, we'll get into a contrast, uh, compare and contrast between Oppenheimer and Hall uh, in a little bit. But uh, let me start with the criticism that you told me your movie. Uh, had generated and my spin on it, and then we get your reaction. I told you right after I saw it on my phone uh, that Ted Hall, uh, if he'd been alive, uh, he would have appreciated the fact he was very lucky that it was you uh, who made the documentary because you were very compassionate to Ted Hall and you really reached out and attempt, made an attempt to understand what motivated him, uh, and you did not depict him as a demon. Uh, and you were, did not depict his wife, uh, Joan Hall, who in her own right is a fascinating uh, character and a brilliant woman, uh, as a demon. And since then, you told me that you've been criticized in various uh, tweets and reviews for being too fair to a man who essentially committed treason uh, against the United States of America. Uh, so why don't you uh, respond to these critics? 
Yeah, well, <clears throat> look, I get that criticism because I think what people want when they, you know, I, I, when you watch this film, I hope you are really wrestling as a viewer with what Ted did. I'm, I'm hoping that you are, you are, you are looking at his actions and questioning them. And some of that very questioning happens in the film itself. And, but the difference is, is it doesn't come from some outside expert sort of laying out the, the, the big case against Ted. It comes from the people who were involved themselves. It comes from Ted who talks about when, you know, the more he learned about Stalinist Soviet Union, the harder it was for him to have, um, uh, it would have been for him to stomach doing this if he had known. You know, was he naive? Yeah, we're, a lot of people were naive, particularly on the left when it came to the Soviet Union at that time. And there are things that complicate that in terms of the U.S.'s position. Because, again, the thing that most Americans don't remember or <laughs> don't even know is that the Soviet Union was our ally. And one of the things we, 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 the film makes the case strongly, I think, for that most Americans don't know or learn in their history classes is that the World War II would not have been won without the Soviet Union. Um, there, there's this sense. I know when I, when I took history in, in, you know, high school, and I wonder how different it is today, frankly, when I took history in high school, it was like the U.S. entered the war and we won it. <laughs> You know, as soon as we entered the war, it all turned around. It's like, that's just not the truth. Um, there's some truth to it, but it is not the whole truth. In the Soviet Union, we would not have won World War II without them. And and the U.S. knew that at the time, which was why Roosevelt on down was promoting the Soviet Union as an ally to the American people, because it was important that the American people embrace the Soviet Union at that point. So this is not Putin's Soviet Union. It was Stalin, and he was a terrible totalitarian leader, but it was not as well known. And there, were, there, were, there was the whole battle against Nazism and Japan. And so it was a different time. And, you know, and Ted Hall was this guy whose parents were from Russia, he was a left leftist in his politics, and he had serious concerns about what the U.S. was capable of doing in the post-war world. And one of the things I think the film goes to great lengths to uh, explain is that his fears weren't. He may have been uh, he may have been out of left field as in terms of his politics, but his fears weren't out of left field. That is for sure. So anyway. I think what some of the critics of the film want is they want they want that criticism to be laid out like, you know, chapter and verse of why he shouldn't have done it. And I feel like the film articulates that, but it does it in a more personal way. You hear it from Ted. You hear it from from Boria, the son of Ted's collaborator in the spying, Sabi Sachs. Um, you know, you hear the misgivings, but you also but it is ultimately a personal view through the lens of Ted and Joan of their lives and what he did. And that's, that's what the film is. All right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Ted Hall. And um, subsequently I've read a book about him and I just, I can't get over this, Steve. He was 19 years old. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm just trying to think what I was doing when I was 19. This kid was 19 years old from New York city. 
Uh, and he was absolutely brilliant, so brilliant that he was selected uh, to go to New, to New Mexico and work on uh, the bomb and have key parts uh, in, in the development of it. And I just, I, I don't know, you know, it's like Mozart or something, only in uh, physics. Uh, so talk a little bit about the, the genius of Ted Hall. Yeah, well, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, he was recruited at the age of 18 as a graduate at Harvard. So he was graduating at the age of 18 in physics. When, when, when recruiters from Los Alamos came to Harvard, they also came to the University of Chicago, which is interesting because of the strength of the physics program there. And they were looking for people who could be junior physicists as a part of the Los, Los Alamos project. His, you know, his professors recommended him, even though he was the youngest graduate there. That's how brilliant he was. And, you know, uh, I think a really good window into just how brilliant Ted was is in the film earlier, uh, early part of the film where Joan and um, his wife and their daughters are sitting around the kitchen table and they're reading these letters that um, Ted wrote to his brother, Ed, the, the engineer eventually in the Air Force. And he's writing these letters when he's like 16 at Harvard, okay? And he's basically describing everything that's wrong with Harvard's approach to education. And he's right. And he's 16. And it's kind of like, so Ted was not only precociously brilliant, he was also not someone who was caught up in, in reputation, in, you know, it's like here he is at Harvard for God's sakes and he's 16 and he's saying, this is not what, this, they're not doing this right. So it doesn't surprise me in a weird sort of way that when he got out to Los Alamos, he's surrounded by the greatest scientists in the world doing the most important scientific project in the history of humankind to that point. It doesn't surprise me that he kind of looked around at a certain point fairly early on and kind of went, what are we doing here? Yeah. What are we doing? Yeah. It, um, and then came to the conclusion that it would be better for the safety of the world if this powerful weapon that can destroy the world was shared by the Soviet Union, which is counter to anything that we, anybody was taught in this country, post definitely post-World War II, but already during World War II because the attentions, we saw this in Oppenheimer, the movie Oppenheimer, the attentions of our the security state we're already turning toward the Soviets uh, and the post-World War II ideological battle that would ensue, which would become the Cold War. But the notion, Steve, that somehow or other the planet would be safer if another country had access to this diabolical weapon is mind-blowing. It, it goes against every instinct that Americans have, I think any other country, but I'm going to stick with America. Americans have. We are the best country. We are the most powerful country. We have the weapons. We control the world. And the notion that you would give effectively, metaphorically speaking, though this powerful weapon to the Soviet Union in order to have a more safe world is just counterintuitive. Yeah, well, and, and and again, it's like, yeah, this whole notion, right, that persists to this day 
that the United States is the benevolent policeman of the world, right? That we've got, we've got everybody's interest at heart and we're going to, we'll enforce the peace uh, around the world because we're so benevolent and not just focused on our own interests, right? Um, that that perception, I think, has been strongly rooted in American identity for so long. And so, yeah, when people watching this film today look at it and they think of Putin's Soviet Union, or if they know any history, they think of Stalin's Soviet Union, they think, why in God's name would he risk giving the bomb to that such a terrible country? And, you know, and, and it's like, again, I understand that point of view, but it does it does ignore certain realities that the film goes to some lengths to try to explain it. it first of all, if, if Ted had been convicted, it wouldn't have actually been of treason because the Soviet union was our ally. You can't, you can't be convicted of treason if it's an ally. So it would have been espionage and they would have put him to death like they did the Rosenbergs, no question, but it wasn't treason. And it also was a situation, as we've been talking about, where, you know, the Soviet Union was, a, you know, was being presented as this treasured ally, important ally, which they were. And, and we, one of the things the film goes to great lengths to show was, is that when the U.S. did get the bomb, they were giddy at the power they now had in the post-war world with this bomb. I mean, there's a very revealing moment in the film where Truman is announcing to the world when they, after they bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and he, he, of course, he lies about what they did. He says they hit a military installation, not a population center, which was a lie. They, they bombed a city. Um, but he, he between takes of him saying, you know, very seriously, this is what we've done. He's laughing. He's giggling. And you see it in the film. It's like this, the U.S. was was positively giddy at the power they had in the post-war world. And as the film makes clear, we were game planning a preemptive strike on the Soviet Union. There was all kinds of war plans being put in place, more than one. We just show you one of them more than one war plan being put in place that would allow, what would it take for us to preemptively eliminate the Soviet Union with new, with atom bomb in the post-war world? And we determined that we needed hundreds and we were on our way to building more and more weapons. And we were, they were in full production in the post-war world. The war's over and we were in full production on bombs in the post-war world. So that's why I, when I say that Ted's fears were not, um, we're not some crazy fantasy. I think the history has shown that what he feared had legitimacy. At least it doesn't mean that the U.S. would have done that, but the U.S. did drop two bombs on Japan when they didn't really need to. And the film, I think, makes that case. So I think that in the post-World world, anytime the U.S. threatened the use of the bomb, which they did against the Soviet Union, against China, against North Korea, Korea, you know, I think there's 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 kind of like it. I, I'm sure that North Korea and China, just like the Soviet Union, took those threats seriously because they saw what we had done in Japan. They didn't think of them as bluffs. <laughs> yeah. 
We'll get back. To, uh, we'll come back to the notion of uh, whether it was necessary to drop the bomb. I want to uh, talk about Joan Hall. If the movie has a star, in my humble opinion, it's Joan Hall, uh, Ted Hall's wife. And uh, she, I think, what is she, 97 years old, Steve? I'm trying to. Well, she was that. 91 when we first interviewed her, and then 94 the second time we interviewed her. And then she just, she literally just passed away about a month and a half ago. Oh, I did not know that. Um, yes, she passed away. Okay. Wow. I did not know that. Um, well, she is the star of the movie. Uh, she's a brilliant woman. Uh, what a match. Ted Hall, he finally like he found someone as smart as he was, but in a different way. He's a scientific mind, a physicist. She had a talent for language. She wrote poetry. She spoke Italian. I think she spoke Russian. I mean, she spoke languages came easy to her. Uh, and when she spoke in the movie, the many interviews that Steve did with her, these long, it's just this flowing sentence, almost poetic, very insightful and very sharp. Uh, and uh, I told Steve this, so I'm going to repeat this. This is the second time Steve's heard this, but uh, yeah, I don't want to give away too much of the movie, ladies and gentlemen, because it really is a dramatic reenactment. And there's things you don't know, and it, it plays like a narrative movie uh, in many ways, but in those mom early moments when the FBI was, was zeroing in on Ted Hall, and they really suspected uh, that he had passed on these secrets uh, to the Soviets, and he was being called in for interrogation. At one point, uh, Ted Hall says, "You know what? I'm just going to tell him everything." And and <laughs> Joan Hall's like, "Are you an idiot?" Didn't literally say that, but Joan Hall was a Chicago girl. She's from Chicago, the South Side of Chicago, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, and she was like. Uh-uh. And, you know, she's got this real sophisticated way of talking, and she's very cultured, and she'd been living in England for, like, 30 years, so she kind of had this little British accent, and she's writing poetry. But all of a sudden, the Chicago Southside girl came out of her, like, are you out of your beeping mind? <laughs> Shut up. Don't say a word. <laughs> Shut up. Lawyer up. Don't say a word. Uh, I, I just, I'm uh, like, I, now I'm feeling really bad that you told me she died. Cause I, well, I told you, I, Steve was going to try to engineer an interview where I really looking forward to just talking to Joan Hall and teasing her about being a Chicago girl. And, uh, I kind of really admire Joan Hall a lot. You talk a little bit about her, Steve. Yeah. I, well, I feel the same. She, she, um, I mean, she was a reason I, really ultimately wanted to make the film really as much as, as much for her as for Ted, because when, you know, when we went to spend a few days with Joan to see if there was a film there, I didn't know what there was of Ted actually talking about any of this. I found out there was substantial material, which, which made it, made it more possible to want to do the film, but it was Joan who I just fell in love with. And, and fell in love with her love affair with Ted. You know, I came away from that first interview just uh, saying to my colleagues, like, yeah, this is a story about geopolitics and espionage, but it is also a love story because this woman is kind of remarkable and her commitment to him and commitment to helping him raise a family and, and try and raise a family in a normal way, despite this thing hanging over them for 50 odd years 
was just kind of amazing. And, you know, Ted, and it's really interesting. I mean, Ted came to have his own misgivings about what he'd done. We talked a little bit about that already. You know, the more he found out about what Stalin had done, the, the, he started to question maybe what he had done. Joan never wavered and, and (laughs) she never wavered. She, she was like, yes, he did. He, he did begin to question, but he did the right thing. And, and that's Joan. That was Joan to her dying day. She believed so completely, you know, she was a left political person. She went to the university of Chicago as a 15 year old. She met Ted when she was 17 uh, they got married when she was 18. I mean, you know, she was every bit um, uh, his match as as an intellect, uh, as a passionate person, and politically minded. Yeah, and very committed, idealistic uh, to like a New Deal vision of the world where we shared uh, as much as we could. Uh, fascinating woman. And uh, man, but that that Chicago is 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 always there. What are you you gonna, you gonna talk to the feds? No, no, not my husband. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know what? Why don't you? We skipped over the essential question. How bad of me? Uh, so Steve James is probably best known for Hoop Dreams, uh, and um, he. A City So Real on this show. We did four episodes dedicated, five episodes dedicated to the show about his feature about Chicago politics. Uh, I had never would in a million years link you with a story about <clears throat> espionage, intellectuals, Jewish intellectuals uh, in the 30s. The halls were Jewish. Uh, I, I just, in a million years, I just would never make that connection. How'd you find your way to this story? <clears throat> well, um, one of the producers, a guy named Dave Lindorf, is a is a writer um, and a journalist. Does a lot of invest, investigative stuff. We we had actually interviewed um, Dave Lindorf for the Abacus Small Enough to Jail film. Um, he's in that film, and he wrote he wrote um, an appreciation of Ted Hall. He kind of discovered Ted and then decided to write a piece. Uh, you know, on the anniversary of the dropping of the bomb a few years ago um, to Ted Hall. And Joan read it and reached out to him and thanked him for the piece. And that they kind of struck up a friendship. Um, You know, Dave has a dog that lives in Great Britain. So he visited with her and he just kind of decided, I think there's a really interesting film here. So because he knew of me and knew me from having done the Abacus film, he reached out to me and my partner on that film, Mark Mitten, and said, um, I'd like to do this film, I, or I think there's a film here. And the more I learned about Ted, the more I, I was struck by, like, you know, yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't have it in my, on my bucket list to do a film about espionage <laughs> or, or about Jewish intellectuals or any of that. Um, but I've always, as you know, Ben, I've always been driven by characters and characters whose lives, I think, have something larger to say. And, and when I look back over my body of work, many of the films that I've done happen to be about, they're, they're very much character-driven portraits of people who find themselves at important junctures in their life, you know, whether it's the 
the young guys in hoop dreams who want to use basketball to get to college in the NBA, um, or it's a mayoral election. <laughs> uh, someone's trying to become mayor or, you know, there, I could go down the list, but this was a case where there was this extraordinary story about this guy that did this extraordinary thing when he was young and, and, and meeting his wife, it felt, I felt like he was in the room again. Um, and that their relationship was very much alive. And I just decided I wanted to try to tell that story. And the idea of telling a story that's about espionage and about geopolitics that's through this personal lens of a love story really appealed to me because I feel like so many of the films that get done about history are way more focused on the history and not the persons. Yeah. Uh, the, the halls are what... Uh, <laughs> in jargon of the FBI were called a premature anti-fascists. And so, <laughs> so it was, in other words, uh, it was good to be an anti-fascist when the United States was officially at war with Nazi Germany. It was bad in the eyes of the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover to be an anti-fascist in the thirties, even though you were fighting the forces that would eventually turn in to Nazism. Uh, up is down, is down is up in American politics. It's been that way forever. Uh, so I uh, salute Ted Hall and Joan Hall, in my humble opinion, for having the courage uh, at a very uh, young age in very scary times uh, to take a stand, an anti-fascist stand. Uh, yeah, well, and Ted, you know, Ben, Ted, Ted says in the film, um, it was it was in the back of his mind while he was working on this. What if a right wing government comes to power in the United States after the war? And, you know, that wasn't just a idle thought. It was I mean, the United States had strong fascist. There was a lot of support for Germany. There was a lot of there were a lot. You know, there was a strong right wing um, political movement in this country. And. And so he, he wasn't, you know, he, it wasn't just some idle thought like, well, what if it, 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 it was a legitimate concern. And, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's, there's always been this historic speculation that if Roosevelt had lived, would he have dropped the bomb on Japan like Truman did? Because Truman, you know, Roosevelt died in office and Truman took over. And Truman was much more of a hawk, I think, historians believe, than Roosevelt. I, I don't think anyone knows conclusively what Roosevelt would have done, but I think there was there 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 was no question what Truman was going to do. And you know, one of the things that became clear to Ted was that the that the reason for the bomb ultimately was not to subdue Japan. I mean, by the time they, by the time of the Trinity test, when they te first tested the bomb out in the desert, um, Germany had surrendered. So it was now just Japan. Japan was was isolated in many ways. the The real purpose for the bomb and the real purpose for dropping the bomb on the so on on Japan, a lot of historians are, have argued, and there's a big argument about this, right, in that community. Was was to demonstrate to the Soviet Union what we had, yeah, and and show them what we had yeah. that sh that a blast in the desert couldn't possibly convincingly show. Absolutely, uh, yeah, it, it it 
at the very least, it would have a twofold purpose. Um, one, to subdue Japan, and two, to send a message to Stalin. And um, I think that's clear. Uh, <clears throat> let's talk about the contrast between your movie and Christopher Nolan's movie uh, and the central characters, Ted Hall and Oppenheimer. Uh, and you, you dutifully uh, prepare for this interview, watched Oppenheimer uh, with my, at my instruction. And uh, <laughs> I just threw that out there. Yeah. I had no uh, interest in it until you said, <laughs> you need to. I said, Steve, before you do the interview, you got to watch. Oh, do I got it? Yeah. Come on, Steve. Um, <laughs> I had seen your movie by the time I, I saw Oppenheimer. Uh, and I was, I, 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 I was really gr- drawn in by Oppenheimer in a really powerful, passionate way. And have subsequently have learned things about uh, Los Alamos, Alamos and, and the Trinity bomb and, and the people in uh, New Mexico who were radiated and the, the people whose story wasn't told. And it's kind of changed my view of the movie in so many ways. Uh, but I was thinking about your movie when, when I watched Oppenheimer. Uh, Ted Hall is not mentioned in the movie Oppenheimer, even though there's a theme in this movie that uh, the communists have infiltrated Los Alamos and they're getting access uh, to these secrets which are passing on to the Soviets. And so the actual spy that we all know about, that books have been written about, that Steve made a movie about, is not even mentioned. <laughs> he's, he's not even mentioned in the movie. I'm like, you just throw him in as a stock character for crying out loud, you know? Uh just a great contrast between Ted Hall and Oppenheimer. In my opinion, uh, Ted Hall is, how do I put this, uh, a more humane human being and more sincere uh, than Robert, uh, Robert Oppenheimer. And I have my reasons for it, but I'd just love to get your thoughts when you think, contrast uh, Oppenheimer and Ted Hall. <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, I think Oppenheimer was brilliant. Oppenheimer was Jewish. Oppenheimer had strong leftist politics and all that, uh, all that comes through in, in Christopher Nolan's movie. Um, and, and, and when they hired him to head the project, there were concerns about all that. Um, you know, his, his flirtation with communists and, and leftist causes. Um, but they needed him. He was brilliant. And, and, you know, he headed up this remarkable effort that brought together the greatest collection of scientists the world had ever seen. Um, but he, you know, I think that, you know, he was a true believer in what they were doing in the sense that, um, you know, he believed that the U.S. needed to get this bomb before Nazi Germany, which I think everyone agreed with that. Um, but he also, I think, was, you know, incredibly naive in thinking that having this bomb, that there would be some way to control it in the post-war world. Um, he, I think he had a greater sense of his own power and influence because he was heading up the project than he in fact had and a greater 
and, and a greater ambition and a greater naivete than Ted. Ted, you know, Ted was just this 18, 19-year-old snot-nosed kid at Los Alamos who was doing work and had had the time and the foresight to think about this. You know, what what Oppenheimer was accused of doing in the post-war world is what Ted actually did. But Ted also came to the insight that Oppenheimer eventually, I think, came to about what he had participated in. Ted had that insight while they were doing it and and then decided to act on it. You know, one of the things the film makes clear is that there were a lot of scientists at Los Alamos who wanted the Soviets to be included in the research that had concerns that we were excluding the Soviet Union. Is the the difference is, is that Ted acted on it. Oppenheimer was so focused on doing his job, which is was a huge job, and and on the achievement of what they were doing, he you know he was swept up in it all, and and it wasn't until the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that I think it really dawned on him what what they had really truly created and what the implications of it were. Well, there's that moment in the movie Oppenheimer, and <clears throat> despite its drawbacks, I, I I really do believe it's a brilliant movie. Uh, and on it's just yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. I thought yeah. it was really pretty great. Um, I wish he had not rewritten, written out the the people who lived, the Hispanos who lived in the area. But uh, anyway, you can't do everything in a movie. Um, but there's that moment in the movie, Steve. I don't know if you remember this, where um, they're literally carting the bomb away that they've created. They put it on a train and they're taking it away, and it will eventually be dropped on Hiroshima. Uh, and Oppenheimer is like still trying to cling to his power. He's the guy, his authority. And I forget what he says. He gives the, some army man advice, what they should do. And the army man looks at him with like a very patronizing way. He says, we'll take it from here. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember that mar- moment in the movie, yeah. but that's where Oppenheimer like, Oh, uh, what have I created? It's out of my hands. I don't know what's going to happen now. Uh, and I, yeah, that, that's where he had his Ted Hall moment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when he first started to realize that he may have created this, this horrific agent of war or agent of death, you know? And, um, he was stricken by yeah, and, Ted Hall, you know, had, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know. It's interesting. Since Oppenheimer's come out, there's been an article, and I don't know if this if this is true, um, but there's been speculation. You know, in our film, we talk about how uh, many of the top scientists drafted a letter to Truman, uh, urging Truman to not drop the bombs on Japan, uh, to do a demonstration blast for them, to show them the awesome power of it without taking anybody's life. Um, and, and, and really warning what could happen in terms of the U S's reputation as a country, if they proceeded with this plan to do this, you know, and, um, you know, and, and Eisenhower, who was head of the, um, the forces in Europe, uh, pleaded with Truman to not drop the bomb. So there was, but you know, what we say in the film, which is what history has tended to record is, is that General Groves, who was 
the you know Matt Damon character in in Oppenheimer, um, who was the general in charge of Los Alamos from a military standpoint, that he never passed the letter on to Truman. Uh, there was spe- there's been speculation since the movies come out that it might have been Oppenheimer that killed the letter to Truman because why <laughs> well because he was still caught up in in a belief in the in in the rightness of everything they'd done uh and so um you know in the film they make a passing reference to that 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 um somebody says uh some scientists don't want to do this and and Oppenheimer's like he's pretty dismissive of the whole thing uh so well we'll ask you the big question now uh and this is a question that believe it or not was discussed in my family's house i came from a very different kind of family and we're not going to spend any more time talking about it other than to say that uh so back in the day we'd be having conversations on whether the bomb was necessary uh for a host of reasons my father was a private in the army, uh, and uh, he was on his way to Japan uh, when the bomb was dropped. So he would have been part of the invasion if they hadn't dropped the bomb. Uh, he nonetheless didn't think the bomb should have been dropped. Definitely not the second bomb. And uh, he didn't even think Hiroshima was. And people would say to him, what are you, nuts? You'd be dead. That bomb saved your life. You, they, that Japan was not going to walk away without a fight. And so it would have been a savage fight, and thousands and thousands and thousands of U.S. soldiers would have died, and you might have been one of them. And then they would go, <laughs> and pointing to me, he wouldn't be here. <laughs> I My existence is based on... You talk about privilege. My existence is based on that bomb being dropped. And I, you know, I always think, oh, well, that makes sense. And I've since thought in a weird way as I've gotten older, Steve, like, well, is my existence worthy of thousands and thousands of human beings in Japan? You know, I wouldn't have been here anyway. You get what I'm saying? It's not like yeah. they would have killed me. I wouldn't be here. And what did, what did your dad say, yeah. though? was why he felt that way he had a long involved uh analysis that he believed in that he was my father was a historian and he believed that uh it would the the talk of japan not wanting to surrender and of to uh, fight on was exaggerated he believed that pretty much until the day he died and uh, you aren't going. You weren't going to talk him out of it. Uh, well, and, and yeah, and there's you know yeah. your dad would know, and I'm sure you know there was there is to this day a huge debate on this question, right? Um, <clears throat> about whether Japan was going to capitulate without either an invasion or a bomb, right? And you know I've read, you know I wouldn't say I've read super deeply into that, but I have read into that when I was making this film, I wanted to kind of read the arguments for and against, which we don't get into 
in the film. We we weren't, you know, we don't get into the the ar- arguments for and against. We basically take the view. We take the view of your dad, which is if if generals are telling you don't drop the bomb. Uh, if, as I think history has shown, that the Emperor of Japan was exploring the ways in which to exit and save face from this war, if we're drop, if we're firebombing Tokyo to the tune of a hundred thousand people dying, if the Soviets are amassing for a invasion themselves with, and they're a lot closer. <laughs> uh, to Japan, uh, and of course, the U.S. didn't want that. If if it was just about saving lives, they they could very well have said, "Okay, Soviet Union ally, you go take care of that business for us. That'd be great." But they didn't want that clearly. So there are so many arguments against it, and and what would waiting and 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 to me, it gets down to. Those scientists that said, give them a demonstration blast and show them what could happen. What was lost in doing that? What would have been lost in doing it? And then the other point the film makes is, and again, I I don't take these lives lightly, but if we had had to do an invasion, if, and I think that's a big if, I'm with your dad on that. The estimate is, is that we could have lost as many as 20,000 soldiers, which is terrible. but. But I think part of what the U.S. sought to rationalize the dropping of the bomb is, is that as as the numbers came in on how many people actually died in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and then from radiation afterwards, then we inflated the numbers to the point where now it's common knowledge among people who don't who haven't really looked into this, that we would have lost a million men, you know, invading Japan. And so that was inflated from 20,000 to a million. So again, 20,000 is a lot, you know, and, and would be a terrible loss. But there's so many mitigating factors to this. There, you know, they dropped the bomb on Japan, I think, a week after the Trinity blast or 10 days. I mean, it was very quickly that this bomb was dropped. What's the rush? <laughs> I think you answered your you know? own question. Uh, it, it was the Soviet Union. There's no doubt in my mind. And, uh, and there, like I said, there, Oppenheimer was a great flick. Uh, and that scene with Truman uh, and Oppenheimer in the White House, Gary Oldham, a Brit playing Truman. I don't know what this country's obsession with British actors. Anyway, <laughs> uh, and, uh, but it, nonetheless, a great scene. Yeah. And true. Get that crybaby out of here. Yeah, it's one yeah, of those no. things that I went and looked up after the movie was over. Yeah, because I was very curious to know how accurate it was. It's very accurate. Yeah, no, it's it it it's accurate. And uh, uh, yeah, Truman, what a crybaby! Uh, get this crybaby out of here, or whatever he said, or what something like that. Uh, and yeah, no, it was um, Truman was sending a message. The message was sent, uh, and uh, Ted Hall sensed years before. This, this guy was going, we'll close, we'll close where we began. A brilliant man in many ways. He sensed where, where this was heading and he made that decision. That, well, and, uh, and, you know, there's historians that argue 
two things we don't have in the movie. One is the reason we dropped the second bomb wasn't just to convince the Japanese we were serious. I think the first bomb probably convinced them of that. <laughs> it was because it was a different bomb. It, it had a different construction and we wanted to make sure it worked properly. And, and that the U.S. also wanted to see the damage that the bomb would do in theater, not just in a desert. And there's all these, there's all kinds of footage of U.S. soldiers and, and scientists, you know, scouring the blast sites in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and measuring and looking at, you know, and taking calculations because they really wanted to see and understand just how awesome the destruction of this bomb was because no one really knew what it was going to be capable of doing. No one really knew. And this was a way to really know was to drop it on people. Yeah. All right, uh, Steve, uh, one more time, tell folks where they can watch it, the name of the movie and uh, all that good stuff. Go ahead. Well, yeah, it's uh, it's it's no longer playing theatrically in Chicago, um, but you can you can get it very easily for the low low price of six ninety nine <laughs> at uh, at um, on any of the usual sort of uh, VOD sites, uh, streaming sites, Amazon, iTunes, YouTube, Vudu. Uh, um, app, I, t- I said that already. Any, any of those, you, you can find it. You can find it very easily. And, uh, and thank you, Ben, for, uh, for this conversation about it. Oh I yeah, no, it. it's, I could, um, I could have several. I'm really, and I'm really disappointed in many ways that I never got an opportunity to speak with Joan Hall. So it goes, uh, but folks, you can hear her, uh, her voice is crystal clear. Uh, it closes with a great poem, uh, that she wrote. Uh, what a significant human being, Joan Hall. And uh, so thank you, Steve, for giving her her opportunity to shine. And thanks for coming on the show, Steve. Thanks for having me. That's great, Steve James. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Take care.